Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gill, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy. And before we get started today, I want to let our listeners know of uh, today's topic. We're going to be looking at um, one of Dr. Smith's upcoming courses. And so I want to invite all of our listeners to check out all of our classes and uh, in both philosophy and theology over at Catholic Studies Academy. You can join us as a uh, as a, sub, a subscribing member, uh, and you'll have access ongoing to uh, a multi- multitude of courses, uh, or you can simply just purchase the courses you want outright. For uh, right now, the price, I believe, is $47. Uh, so you can, you can purchase those courses outright and just own them and have access to them for a lifetime. And you'll also have access to our members-only forum where uh, the lecturers interact with um, different members of Catholic Studies Academy, and we do not allow trolls in there. So, uh, <laughs> feel you. It's a it's a good and open and honest discussion uh, between armchair scholars and uh, everybody that falls um, in between. So, um, all right. So to get started in today's topic, uh, we're going to look at Dr. Smith's upcoming course, the Crisis. Um, uh, the Crisis of Philosophy, specifically looking at the years 1900 to 2000. And uh, uh, so this is, so I think here we're getting really into um, uh, almost the, the we're going to be talking about philosophy, but we're getting into the practical because these are really the things that have shaped mm-hmm. our modern world right. um, uh, very much. And I think for a lot of our listeners, and myself included, um, you know, sometimes I think we just sit back and we say, gosh, what the hell happened? You know? Right, right, right. And it, and it goes back to, you know, uh, a good um, a good premise that we believe here at Catholic Studies Academy is that ideas have consequences. That's right, that's right. And, that's uh, right. Um, and so uh, Dr. Smith's new course is going to be looking at um, this, uh, uh, this period of philosophy from 1900 to 2000. So um, Dr. Smith, to get us started here, uh, maybe you can kind of um, uh, philosophically introduce us, or w- within the the historicity of uh, uh, philosophy, how do we how do we get to this point? What sets up this time period of 1900 to to, to the year 2000? Sure, Jason. Uh, so there's uh, uh, as with all things, right? You know, you you, you know, we're gonna study if we're gonna study philosophy from 1900 to 2000. Uh, we also then need to know something about, you know, the hundred years before that, right? Yeah. Um, to kind of set things up. Um, but I think, you know, just uh, as an aside, I think this is going to be a really valuable course because like you said, sometimes we just don't know. You're like, why, why is everything this way? And one thing yeah. I've tried to spend a lot of time doing in the last, you know, I don't know, uh, five years is trying to really um, improve my understanding of the history of philosophy in the modern period up through into the 20th century you know sometimes i'll hear phrases like postmodernism or existentialism or something like that you're like well where did that come from i mean you know like why why is it here where did it come from that kind of thing there's a there's a history there and then this course we're going to kind of uncover uh that history so i think it'll be really useful uh to uh, all the students who, who study it um getting started here when you're thinking about the 20th century thought which you know i do label as a crisis and i know our last podcast was about a crisis <laughs> as well and what can i say this is just where we are right here but uh, at this point um but i do label it as a crisis because i think that 
our contemporary setting or 20th century philosophy has created a situation in which um, because of our lack of conceptual tools and because of the, the sort of flawed conceptual framework that we've been left with, you know, we really have almost complete collapse of our ability to have public debates. Uh, we've talked about this, you know, in our last one, and I'm really into our last uh, podcast, I'm really interested in this idea of public reason. And, you know, I think that public reasons almost entirely collapsed at this point, right? We, we just have no conceptual common philosophical framework in which to operate. Um, there's always been tensions, there's always conflict, but where we are is, is like, you know, even about matters like COVID and, and how to respond to COVID, there's just no set of ideas that, that helps us to, to navigate disagreements about that, all right, in terms yeah. of how to respond. And even our over-reliance on, on certain things, maybe, right, um, can go back to this history that we're going to talk about in a very broad and sweeping terms today. So if you're going to um, look at 20th century philosophy, you need to think a little bit about 19th century philosophy. And by and for sure, you know the the greatest influence there is Immanuel Kant, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> His transcendental idealism uh, really sets the stage for subsequent philosophical developments. Yeah. Um, transcendental idealism, uh, you know, we've talked about this before um, uh, on the podcast, <clears throat> but just very briefly, you know, Kant came to the conclusion that we can only know. The, the phenomena that we experience insofar as the mind has shaped the data of experience to be knowable by us. Right. Yeah. So, you know, in this way, you know, the objects, truth happens when objects conform to the way the human mind can know. Right. And anything outside yeah. of that, right. is just unknowable by the human mind. It might be known by something else, but not by us. Right. Yeah. And so, so at, at best it breeds just skepticism of everything at best skepticism of, of external reality. Right. Yeah. Now Kant <laughs> believed that he had correctly identified the universal structures of reason and the universal yep. structures of a knowing mind. So he thought that this was a world that we shared the world of phenomena. Right. Um, and that, it, you know, like you didn't have your own individual phenomena that's wildly different than mine, right? So he wasn't yeah. a subjectivist in that way. Um, but he did think that we were cut off, right, from um, reality, right? So he did so insist that there was a reality outside of human experience and outside the human mind, but we just can't know it, right? All we yeah. can know is the the data given an experience as it's shaped to be knowable by the human mind right so think about it this way like it's kind of almost like you've got this plato right um and or clay or whatever and you know we can only see squares so we stamp squares right <laughs> onto yeah. that clay and we say hey look they're squares right <laughs> and then there's like uh, you know maybe that's a poor example but maybe an analogy limps a little bit but uh, you know, this way, what the mind does, it stamps certain ideas on the data of experience, like yeah. um, space, time, cause and effect. We don't experience space, time, cause and effect uh, directly from reality. Rather, we impose categories on the data of experience so that we can understand it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard this kind of play get played out. And I'm sure maybe some of our listeners have well have heard it as well is you know when when people um 
maybe give you the, uh, the statement, well, you know, God is just man's projection on things mm-hmm. he cannot really know. Uh-huh. Sure. You sure, know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, this, this playing out of, um, you know, almost in a, in a false, false humility mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, of, of things like that. And um, so, so Kant had this, the uh, a huge effect yeah. on the, on, on this whole time period of, um, uh, of philosophy then. That's right. Yeah. And really even in German culture, you know, uh, even today, you know, he's kind of revered. I, I, I briefly, um, for a year, uh, I had some roommates who were German uh, when I was in uh, uh, university uh, at college, and uh, they uh, they were always referred to Kant as the last universal genius. Uh, but anyways, wow. <laughs> but anyways, um, so but at the time he was really uh, popular. One of the reasons I, I firmly believe is he made room for agnosticism right mm. all of the old arguments for the existence of god go away because all we know is the phenomena right we don't know yeah. the thing itself and so ultimately right we have to be agnostic about everything you might be like, well what's so great about that well to a lot of people at the time not a lot of people for a particular class really the rising middle class uh of the time especially the youth of that class they saw this as exciting right because so much of german culture and society conservative and traditional have been backed up by you know uh if it was in a, if you were in a catholic region of course catholicism or lutheranism and mm-hmm. once you know you could once agnosticism became intellectually respectable right then you're you're like to them that's like oh i can cast off the traditions i can cast off yeah. right all of that so it was very liberating right uh to many people to have a philosophy that made newtonian science possible on the one hand but on the other uh legitimized um Legitimized agnosticism. Now, of course, later, uh, the, you know, as soon as Kant, you know, publishes this material, uh, there's of course also strong negative reactions, and and one of the reactions is, well, um, one, how do you know that 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 the structures of reason you found are actually universal, right? Yeah. How, uh, how do you know that we all share the same world? And second, how do you even know there is a thing in itself, right? I mean, if all we know is the phenomena then why, why posit a reality outside that phenomena? And, and eventually that's, that second question led to, uh, those two questions together really led to uh, a pivot away from transcendental idealism, which was mainly, uh, you know, sometimes we should call it critical idealism, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it was really more of epistemological. There were meta, you know, yeah. what, what, what Kant did is he ended metaphysics, but he just said, look, all we can know is the phenomena and we just have to be agnostic about metaphysics, right? Um, uh, there was a pivot away from that to what's called absolute idealism, right? And that's where you get uh, various thinkers culminating in Hegel, right? Mm-hmm. Who have the view that to be is to be perceived or another way to put it is all of reality is mental or all of reality is spiritual right yeah so there is no reality outside of mind right is what the is a, is a way to, is a way to put it right um and uh, did you have a question or comment there jason yeah well i mean it, it, Kant's, Kant's position oh you know it does seem kind of self-defeating uh in that you know if the only thing we can know is the phenomena how does mm-hmm. he come about the the how is his structure true because you can't, you don't necessarily experience the structure of thinking in phenomena. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what Kant would say is, 
uh, what I've deduced are the a priori necessary conditions of the possibility of any experience, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, um, there's yeah. a lack of self-reflection there, right? You know. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the pendulum, so the pendulum swings. That's right. To, it swings, uh, yeah. to the other side. Yeah. yeah, absolute idealism. You know, which is really it's a fascinating period to study. Fascinating uh, set of metaphysics. When I teach metaphysics class, sometimes I go through some of that history um, because it's so strange to think. And it's, you know, how did we get to that spot? Um, yeah. But eventually, you know, Hegel's, and again, I'm just being very, oh, this 5,000 feet kind of <laughs> view yeah. of this, right? But uh, Hegel, you know, says, look, what we have to do is recognize that um, um, mind, right? Mm-hmm that there isn't anything that exists outside of mind. And then to understand reality, really you have to understand mind and understand and to, uh, in order to understand mind, you need to understand it's unfolding. He recognized a really interesting problem, which is that in order to understand right, the deliverances of reason, you need to understand reason, but in order to do that, that's an act of reason itself. So you yeah. can't be sure of the deliverances of your views about reasoning when you're using reasoning, right? So there's a circularity there. Do you, do you follow the problem there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you could come up with all sorts of ideas about reason, but until you know how to use reason properly, you can't be sure of those ideas that you came up about reason, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's maddening. You know? it's yeah, so so how, how, does says, he get, how does he get around this? Yeah, History. History. That, okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that uh, what we can do is just, he literally says, look, right. And that if we look at the unfolding of reason over time, then we will come to understand mind. And by coming to understand mind, come understand reality. Right. Yeah. And what he discovers supposedly is that um, what we have, what the, the meaning of history and the meaning of reason is the self-consciousness of reason's freedom. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we see over time is, is it's unfolding from ancient Greece all the way to 19th century Germany. Right. Yeah. Is uh, this um, uh, constant growth in reasons, self-awareness of its own freedom and autonomy. Yeah. Um, interesting. That, interesting uh, idea. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and, what's, and with Hegel, he doesn't just look backwards at kind of the history of ideas and things like that, but he looks he looks forward mm-hmm. to. Uh, the, kind of the, the the high point of history when we will have this kind of autonomous being of freedom or something like yeah, that. Or, yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there will be a total uh, realization of um, our uh, freedom, reason's freedom in the establishment of the completely rational state. Yeah. Um, so it becomes <laughs> political in that way, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and Marx it, yeah. picks it up. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And you can feel, you know, tones of this. I mean, there is a kind of utopian slash dystopian, right, uh, feel uh, yeah. to that, at least to my my uh, inclinations. Um, there's a metaphysical picture that goes with that, right, which is mm-hmm. that all of all of reality, the trees, the badgers, your mind, uh, the Battle of Waterloo, all of it is an extension of one mind, right? Ultimately, yeah. right? Uh, uh, yours as well. So there's the, what, what Hegel calls the world spirit, right? Yeah. Uh, the world spirit is really using all of these different historical events, ideas, civilizations to figure itself out, right? 
um, and to realize its own freedom, right? So that's how there's unity to things. That's why this isn't radically subjective, right? Yeah. At this point, because he sees that, oh, there's a, there's a reality, right? And it's unified and it's uniform, right? And it's objective, right? Uh, because there's just one mind, right? Uh, your mind and my mind are extensions of that mind, right? But there's only one ultimate mind, right? And everything yeah. is its its thought, right? Now, that was for some, you know, that was really compelling for several generations, right? In yeah. fact, that that kind of vision became uh, popular in both uh, Britain uh, and also in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, in America, uh, the, there was still a lot of common sense Scottish philosophy um, that competed with it, as well as pragmatism, mm-hmm. kind of philosophy by William James. But idealism certainly had its uh, um, had its proponents, um, as I say, both in, in the UK and in the United States. And so this really becomes a dominant way of thinking, right, for a good while. Uh, but like anything else, it eventually, like a lot of uh, philosophical ideas, it eventually sort of implodes, right? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think, you know, just the implausibility of it, right, you know, helps it to implode. How it all sort of slowly started to fall apart <clears throat> um, is a longer story, but one mm-hmm. element of that was uh, certainly uh, what were called the young Hegelians or the left-wing Hegelians. Mm-hmm. And that would include people like Feuerbach and Karl Marx. These folks tended to interpret, they liked the idea of a kind of historical dialectic, right? Yeah. In which certain themes are unfolding, right? Uh, over time, right? They, they, they thought that was the correct way to think about it. The, um, but they wanted to naturalize it, right? So instead of saying everything is mind, right? Um, you know, Feuerbach wanted to move towards everything being psychology and matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you could even sort of say Darwinism, right? Kind of has like the development of the species over time, right? Mm-hmm. And that all has to do with survival and biology, right? Karl Marx yeah. has it as the development of everything in terms of class conflict, <clears throat> right? The competition for the means of production, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's interesting to think about that way. Right? They take that idea and they flip it, right? To where, yes, Hegel's right that thought and culture change over time right right even even reason changes over time right maybe even being to some degree changes over time right yeah like darwin right uh because you have new species coming about right um but he was wrong in terms of making it all ideal instead of making it ideal it's actually material right yeah so for all material yeah, yeah that's right like you were talking to, uh, i think before we started about Feuerbach. <clears throat> you know being the idea that god is the projection of man right of man's yeah. own powers right you know, you find something similar. Uh, uh, so we have another version of this in um, um, the work of Freud, right? Who's a 19th century figure, right? Mm-hmm. Who wants to turn everything into psychology, right? Um, and so that becomes a major movement there. So you have Karl Marx, right? You have psychology, um, you have Darwinian science, all sort of pulling idealism down or flipping it right. on, on its head to some degree, it's- right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So reversing everything from the ideal to the material. That's right. The material, but still keeping this idea of dialectical development, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Have, you have everything's changing, right? Um, which is, is a, I think, a sort of interesting move there, especially since, you know, really since time immemorial, the the philosophical ideal, right, had mm-hmm. been to, to achieve 
the the changeless, the universal, the eternal, right? Uh, you might yeah. disagree about all about how you get there, but that's where everybody's trying to aspire to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's like, no, I mean, no, there's none of that, right? <laughs> uh, we, we we can't get to that, right? All we can do is get to understanding within this um, unfolding of history, right? Dialectical, um, and I use that phrase a couple of times here, dialectical really just means conflicting, right? So that mm-hmm. history develops through conflicting ideas or conflicting forces, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to kind of think about it this way. Idealism, absolute idealism, developed as the kind of mainstream official um philosophy of the 19th century until it started to collapse in the last decades of the 19th century right uh for a variety of reasons the what we are living in is kind of the attempted successor kingdoms i guess i would put it that way right (laughs) i like to think about you know i like history uh jason and um you know, Alexander the Great, right? And all of his great conquests, right? Think about that. And he make, makes it all the way to India, right? He has this gigantic empire he patches together from all his conquered people. You know, his army almost, uh, it, like every as he'd go along, like he'd pick up these other, his conquered people and bring them along with his new army, right? And yeah. so he's, his army's changing the whole time he's marching across, you know, I guess near Asia uh, or Asia Minor and in the Middle East. Uh you know, once he dies, then everyone's like, well, what the heck are we going to do with all this stuff, <laughs> right? Because he was such a charismatic figure. And I kind of think that's the case with idealism, you know. Once idealism dies, <clears throat> we're kind of left with, the like, competitors to take the place of idealism, right? They're all fighting yeah. it out, right? And uh, one of those uh, competitors was psychologism, Right. Uh, psychologism is a view advocated by a number of thinkers in the 19th century, including John Stuart Mill, um, that wanted to reduce all, really all epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics to psychology, right? Yeah. So that, you know, f- basically Freudian psychology becomes, you know, or some something like that, uh, becomes the uh, first philosophy, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm it's not even, we're not even going to argue about epistemological things as being first. We're going to argue about kind of psychological, emotional substructures, right. Uh, And mental phenomena as first, right. So your feelings about shame or guilt, right. Are primary to, or prior to your philosophy. Right. Yeah. Is that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I go, and I go, and, and at first I think you could say, okay, well, it seems there might be something to that because before I ask the question, you know, what is shame? I experience shame, maybe right. in some way. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a, a maybe a a, a chronological mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. primacy to sure. uh, uh, to experience or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can see you can see going that way, and and you know, probably yeah. the, the most powerful proponent of this would be Friedrich Nietzsche, right? who talks yeah. about everything in terms of, right, you know, really it's our psychological needs, right, uh, or strengths or weaknesses, right, that predetermine our philosophical trajectory, right? You know, Plato comes up with the world of eternal and unchangeable forms because he needs them, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he lives in this world of flux and, and corruption and imperfection, and, and he just can't st- stand it, right? So he invents the world of the forms uh, for its sort of metaphysical comfort. Um, <laughs> so it, it's interesting, right? So you really, you know, you reduce yeah. then all ideas, logic, you know, all that sort of thing <clears throat> to uh, psychological conditioning, right? Yeah. Uh, now, that had its day, mm-hmm. but it didn't ever really become dominant, I would say, mm-hmm. but it certainly was a stream. And uh, a number of thinkers responded to it who really were the originators of the tradition that's come to be known as phenomenology, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that actually phenomenology is, um, it's really the root of what people call continental philosophy, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were in a modern philosophical department uh, um, in most schools, right, you would take a course on analytic philosophy and you would take a course on uh, continental philosophy, right? Those being the two major streams of 20th century philosophy, right? Now, obviously, this is a very British way of putting it because <laughs> it's, it's, it's the British who call it, oh, that's a philosophy like they do over there on the continent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not like we do over here on the island, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But anyways, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it does sort of hang together. And I think phenomenology is really the, 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 the root of continental philosophy. Again, going back to Kant and Hegel being in the background, right, as well as Karl Right. Um, so Brentano is the, the, the really the founder of uh, phenomenology, uh, although he didn't call it phenomenology, but he sort of got some of the ideas on the table and was the teacher of, um, interestingly, um, the teacher of um, uh, Husserl, among other uh, mm-hmm. uh, important intellectuals of that time. Uh, Edmund Husserl is the real founder of phenomenology, but Brentano kind of gets it started. Brentano was a um, um, defrocked priest, interestingly, right? Uh, but he had, yeah. he had gotten his education uh, as a seminarian. And so he was very um, uh, well-versed in Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, as well mm-hmm. as various forms of modern or uh, contemporary thought of his day. And uh, he, um, you know, he really wanted to push back against the psychologism. Um, and I'm not going to go into his thought in any detail, except to say that he discovered um, what was uh, co- come to be called intentionality, right? Um, which was a v- major idea that Edmund Husserl picked up on, okay? Um, and I'll, I'll describe that in a few minutes here, but that was really kind of what, what helped Husserl uh, get started here. Um, Husserl, by training, was originally a mathematician. And one of the things that mathematicians, I think this is just true if you study much philosophy, People who enter philosophy through mathematics almost always end up being Platonists. <laughs> so, so, right, right. <laughs> they love uh, because they love deductive certitude, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that's beautiful about math and pure logic, right, is it has a deductive certitude and purity to it um, that you don't get with the empirical sciences, right? Uh, yeah. Because the empirical sciences are inductive and they have to be revised, and there's new evidence and all that sort of <laughs> thing, right? Um, so Husserl was very, <clears throat> Edmund Husserl was a Czech um, uh, philosopher, um, was very, uh, just to put it, but pissed off about psychologism, right? Because he was saying, yeah. look, you can't say that crap about math and logic, 
right? <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know, like whatever you want to say about reducing everything to your feelings of shame or your powerless or your psychological needs, right? Whatever. Yeah. That's not true about math, right? It's not yeah. true about pure logic. And so what Husserl wanted to do was to develop a defense of the objectivity mm -hmm. of math and logic, right? Now to do that though, he said, what we need to do is we need to get a, um, a science of consciousness yeah. because conscious, because math and logic are derived from, are constructed by consciousness. Now I said Platonist in a, uh, a minute ago, you could, Husserl could have gone real Platonist, right? If you're a real Platonist, then you think mathematical objects and logical objects exist in a separate reality, right? Yeah, they have real being. Let's have real reality. being, that's yeah. right. Husserl didn't want to make that move. He wanted to say that they attained a certain kind of objectivity in human consciousness, right? Okay, yeah. And, and in doing so, he does tip his hand a little bit because who does that sound like? It sounds a little bit like Kant, right? Yeah, yeah. And he, and he does acknowledge early in his work that he has some sort of what I would call neo-Kantian leanings, right? Yeah. He doesn't go as far as Kant, but he wants to say that we can find within consciousness itself the structures that make mathematics and logics objective and universal, right? Do, do you yeah. see the move there? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you want to, you know, it's be, because of kind of the the, the material pendulum. Mm -hmm. uh, is there you want to try to recover some of the idealism that was lost? after yeah. Kant and, sure. and after that. So I, yeah. So I mean, it makes sense. I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. And so uh, what he, so he defines phenomenology this way. He says, phenomenology is the science of the essential structures of consciousness. Mm. Right. Again, sounds a little Kantian, right. When you really think about it. Right? Yeah. Um, and so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to bracket. This is an interesting, right. He has this thing called uh, epoche. Right. Uh, and what that is, it's a bracketing and we're going to bracket any accounts of um, <clears throat> any metaphysical account of the objects of consciousness. Right. And we're just going to reflect on and observe the objects of consciousness as they present themselves within consciousness. Right. Um, without, again, trying to give a ontological critique uh, right are they really real stop yeah right um and so uh, that's that's really what he's doing in phenomenology now again he's striving for objectivity okay so mm -hmm. we don't want to attribute uh we don't want to attribute to him a kind of subjectivism that wouldn't be right 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 yeah at the same time you can see here this is a kind of reflection into our subjectivity right Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. Now, this is going to sound really weird, but he thinks though there are objective structures within subjectivity itself, right? That we can mm -hmm. bring out, right, through a sufficient and rigorous reflection, right? Now, yeah, because some of this sounds a little soft, but he thought of this as really being a very rigorous kind of science, right? And that what you could, what you, the way you did this was by looking at ideas and reducing ideas to the most basic ones, right? Mm -hmm. Looking mm -hmm. at experience and reducing them to the most basic kinds of experience, right? And then using what he called eidetic reduction 
to so eidetic eidos right that's kind of okay. back to essences right yeah but again essences in our consciences right in our conscious yes conscience all right in consciousness it starts to say yeah. hard to say. awareness <laughs> let's go with awareness right awareness. yeah and uh and then we can find the 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 structures that are the most essential all right uh yeah. to thinking okay now i'm not going to get into that too much in the course i'll have two classes on it and we'll get down into the details there's a yeah. lot there to explore there is a lot of people you know are inspired you know uh quite inspired by uh edmund husserl uh, sure. including uh, people uh, like uh, Edith Stein and, uh, you know, JP2, right, is also Dietrich, somebody. Dietrich von Hildebrand. Sure, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some 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 good folks, uh, but also very interestingly, some others, right, like Heidegger, right, who was a student of uh, Husserl. Uh, but just very briefly, just as an overview of Husserl, you know, he was very, became quite influential, had a lot of important students, mm-hmm. Um it's most scholars concede that by the middle or end of his career, he had gone ahead and moved towards, I guess what you might again, say something like transcendental idealism because yeah. he does, but because by that time he's sort of saying like, I just don't know. We don't know anything about reality except as what's given within con- the structures of consciousness. Right. Yeah. Those structures are objective. <laughs> right. Et cetera. Right. But he gets back to that point. Right. One really interesting thing is about that is he does say that the most fundamental kind of consciousness we have uh, after intentionality is time consciousness, right? So those, like whenever you're studying phenomenology, and we'll talk about this some, intentionality as well as Mm -hmm. time consciousness are two of the major sort of pillars there. Mm -hmm. Heidegger is a student, you know, uh, famous and infamous student of Husserl. Okay, so phenomenology is the background. Yeah. Uh, really a lot of people ask, where does Heidegger come from? Where does existentialism come from? Well, there's an answer phenomenology, right? Heidegger is the student of Husserl, right? And he likes a lot of what Husserl has to say, but he takes a very different turn, right? And his turn is to say, look, Husserl, you're, you've got it exactly backwards. It's so funny how this works, right? Like in modern philosophy, um, you've got it exactly backwards. It's not about consciousness. It's about being, and that sounds good at first, right? Yeah. What we need to recognize <laughs> is that that conscious, it's not so much that we need to find objectivity through exploring consciousness. It's rather that consciousness is an extension of the objectivity of being. So it's all part of one thing, right? In, um, in Heidegger's view, kind of a, continu- a continuum, I should say, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what consciousness is, is what he calls Dasein, right? Uh, and that's this, you know, famous term he kind of puts together um, that basically is meant to say, communicate this idea that consciousness is where is just being showing itself, right? So it's an extension of being, and it's where being discloses itself to itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of weird kind of way of putting it, right? But you can kind yeah. of accept some of it. Um, but what he thinks is that if we pay attention then to consciousness, we see being perfectly, just as it is exactly, right? Without any need for an uh, interpretive overlap. He thinks that what is, what's happened, though, is over the history of philosophy since Plato, 
Okay. <laughs> right. <Weird>. Bold claim. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> you see, like the pre-Socratics are on the right path, right? But since Plato, we have fallen into the oblivion of being, right? Yeah. And, and, and because of that, we've lost talk, contact with being as well as our own human being, right? Mm. And so here is where philosophy begins to take this turn towards existentialism right? And the work of Martin Heidegger. Um, again, there's a lot of details you could go into there, and we will in the course. Um, but there, you know, the essential question then becomes, how do we recover being, right? How do, and how do we recover ourselves? And this is where we, we encounter terms like authenticity, inauthenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, becoming, coming to the fore, right? Because if we can recover being, then we can re- recover ourselves, right? And stop living in this kind of oblivion and inauthenticity that we go through uh, in modern life, right? So you saw that there was something wrong with modern life, right? Yeah. It had to do with our, um, um, our detachment from being, including our own human being. Interesting, right? Yeah. Now, now, did he have some kind of the, did he have the same view of uh, like universals that Plato did? No, he thinks the idea of universals is one of the worst distortions of being, right? Like those are the kinds of ideas that drive us away from the authentic, the authenticity of being and the authenticity of our own human being, right? So ideas like eternity, uh, ideas like universals, you know, the eternal, the universal, the unchanging, all of that is just distorting crap, right? <laughs> right? It really destroys the human spirit, he thinks. Uh, um, he's picking up a little bit of this from his readings of Nietzsche as well, because he's also influenced by Nietzsche, right? Okay, okay. Interesting, um, interesting. Yeah, so again, there's a lot of details there. Using the phenomenological method, though, he, uh, including eidetic reduction, he comes down to the, the view that uh, his most famous book is being in time right mm-hmm. and you could change the title to being is time right because that's yeah. eventually what he ends up saying is you know that time and being are the same thing being is nothing different than time time is nothing different than being right um and we're just an extension of that we don't like that because that includes our death right we want yeah. to project ourselves beyond right um yeah beyond death right um but that is where we fall into inauthenticity right now, and, now is that similar to hegel or no there's some similarities like, there mm-hmm. sure. yeah, yeah. did he believe yeah yeah oh it's so fascinating he didn't but, believe in an absolute mind right because that yeah. starts to make something that's eternal right eternal yeah, yeah absolutely there's nothing yeah. eternal um we're just part of the flow of time um and time and and you know um and so, you know, to recover authenticity, to recover being, to live authentically, right, uh, and to be at peace, we need to uh, accept that, right? Uh, he, he calls yeah. it, uh, to recover our, our, our authenticity, we have to embrace lucid resolution in the face of death, right? Mm. Uh, and that the, the death is our ultimate horizon, right? Very interestingly, when you look at both uh, Hans von Balthasar and... Um, um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, well, there's a kind of a, a guy who's a Protestant who's kind of a parallel to von Balthasar. Karl Bart. Yeah, thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Um, you know, they're both very influenced by Heidegger, 
mm-hmm. and uh, and you know Benedict XVI through von Balthasar, right, uh, is as well. Now, of course, they're Christians, right, and so mm-hmm. they you know interpret things differently. But the whole idea, you know, I'm sure you've heard this this idea of uh, in in Benedict XVI and in von Balthasar about the horizon of death. Right. And whether or not you know, we go beyond the horizon. Well, all that language comes straight out of uh, Heidegger. Right. Heidegger, so, yeah. you know, they're sort of Christianizing. Right. A kind of yeah. existentialist uh, approach. Now, out of Martin Heidegger, you know, comes existentialism, because one of the things he says is that, you know, as Dasein, we, we exist. What he means by that is we set out. Right. We go yeah. into the world. Right. Uh, we don't we're not just like a, a badger. Right. But as Dasein, as 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 being as consciousness, we're aware of possibilities. Right. And so we mm-hmm. experience this kind of radical freedom. And that's what the French existentialists picked up on, in particular, Jean-Paul Sartre. So, again, where did all these things come from? They come from phenomenology. Okay, <laughs> right? yeah. There's Husserl, there's Heidegger and then there's Jean-Paul Sartre. Right. Um, Again, I won't go into all the details here, right, with existentialism, but it's really an outgrowth of this idea of the, so he takes, Jean-Paul Sartre takes one part of, say, mm-hmm. Heidegger's philosophy and mm-hmm. really develops it into this kind of idea of <clears throat> really radical freedom and atheism. Right. Yeah, and I think for our listeners to understand, especially when it comes to theology, that uh, theologians have always, you know, seen uh, the place of philosophy and that philosophy serves uh, theology in this way. So mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, for, for, you know, theologians during this time, right. You, you, you experience new philosophies and, you know, you, you may ask yourself, can this be of service to theology? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of them, you know, like, you know, some sure. of the ones we've mentioned, you know, Balthazar, JP2, Dietrich von Hildebrand, Right. Uh, Carl Bart, like a lot of them were, you know, genuinely, you know, sure. trying to to make use of this um, new and, you know, what they probably thought, you know, hopefully developed uh, philosophy mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, to serve theology. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I would I, I and I have no myself, you know, sometimes Christians get into an argument about the relationship between culture and theology. Right. Yeah. And, and should your do- uh, oh your your doctrine is just reflecting American culture or something like that, right? And yeah. you know what I want to say is I don't have a problem with culture impacting and being used by theology because yeah. it's inevitable. I mean, you, you just yeah. like the, the your thought that you can get a, a escape that is just false, right? Right. You're going to be you're going to be mediating and developing these ideas within a, cont- a particular intellectual milieu, right? Yeah. Uh, and you just can't help it, right? Now, the question, though, is, is this philosophy adequate to the use, right? Yeah. I think that's a better, you know, so I'm not, I'm not going to beat up on any theologian for saying, oh, well, he used some, some Heidegger or, or whatever, right? I, that's fine, right? Uh, you, you're going to yeah. have to use some sort of philosophy, um, yeah. The, your question though is, is it adequate, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll say something about that here in, at the end. Um, but yeah, that's a good that's a good observation, uh, Jason. All right. So where do we where do we go after Heidegger? Uh, basically, into existentialism, right? Uh, existentialism. I'll have a class on that. Uh, and he, you know, he talks really as it explores this idea of radical freedom that we mm-hmm. set out that we're not in essence is the basic idea of existentialism. There's no okay. human essence, right? There's no human blueprint. 
right? This is why atheism is necessary because he says, look, if there was a God, then there would be a blueprint in the mind of God, right? <laughs> and we couldn't be, we couldn't become whatever we, we, we choose, right? But we can become whatever we choose. This sounds very familiar, I suppose, um, yeah. in contemporary debates, because there is no God and there is no blueprint, right? And because yeah. of our consciousness, we are radically free. And even what we, uh, radically free, even in terms of epistemology, right? We first choose to decide what to count as evidence, right? So you might yeah. choose to become a traditionalist Catholic, or you might choose to become a Marxist, or might choose to be, you know, be a, in a biology department at a, at a university. All of those are just choices, right? And you could yeah. have chosen just as well chosen otherwise, right? Um, there's no immediate middle point to adjudicate between those choices, right? So this is kind of, I mean, you can see like, you know, there's a certain attractiveness to this if you're a rebel in the 1950s, right? When he's, <laughs> uh, he's working, right? Uh, you know, Jean-Paul Jean -Paul Sartre is, the, is your, you know, prototypical or, or sort of paradigmatic, you know, French philosopher smoking a cigarette with a turtleneck on and, a, you know, beret and, and all that sort of thing, right? So um, existentialism was, I mean, enormously impactful sure. uh, in, in, for about a decade, right? Um, over time, though, it lost ground to both uh, neo-Marxism and postmodernism, right? Mm -hmm. Critical theory and postmodernism. Again, there's a lot to go into details here, and I just can't, uh, but I'll just say in, in broad strokes, the kinds of concerns about consciousness and freedom mm -hmm. that you find developing out of Husserl and through Heidegger uh, and into existentialism get socialized and politicized in neo-Marxism and postmodernism, right? Mm -hmm. Neo-Marxism takes that Marxist critique. Sometimes it goes, uh, it's called the Frankfurt School. Sometimes it's called critical theory, right? Yeah. Uh, whatever uh, it may be, but takes that Marxist view, the economics, right? That, that all of history is the unfolding of uh, economic competition between classes, economic oppression, mm -hmm. uh, and the competition for the means of production. It takes that, though, and amplifies it and extends it to all considerations, right? Between the races, yeah. between the classes, between different cultures, uh, between um, uh, men and women, uh, et cetera, right? So you get the idea that really history has been the unfolding of the oppressed and the oppressor, right? And yeah, this, and I think this, yeah, I think this really sets the stage for our modern, our modern culture and experience right. of everything being subjected to the political that the That's right. that mm -hmm. politics is the umbrella and everything mm -hmm. else is underneath it sure. therefore we look at everything even things that you know 5 years ago we'd be like mm -hmm. this is not a political issue <laughs> right. all of that a sudden is. becomes the political yeah, issue right yeah, you're, you're using so, pronouns all sorts of things like that right oh yeah so um the um to so grammar right grammar yeah. is it's political, political right? yeah just think about that <laughs> Um, we have uh, these folks to thank for that. But you think about so the kind of the things that, that that Sartre was concerned with in terms of human freedom, right? And and, mm -hmm. and again, he was interested in authenticity and authenticity. He thought very often we took we wouldn't embrace our radical freedom, right? Instead, we would you know believe in God or believe in a political movement or something like that. Yeah. Well, what the the critical theorist said to, about the existentialists is, well, that's naive, right? Because yeah. consciousness never really is free. It's always hemmed in by and conditioned mm -hmm. by uh, the dialectic of oppression. Do you see? Right. Yeah. So yeah. this 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 
there is a there is a consistent theme through all of this, and that sure. is consciousness, right? Yeah. What is consciousness? What is subjectivity? And even our own subjectivity, the critical theorists would say, are preconditioned, right, by the oppressor oppressed dialectic, right? Yeah. So our considerations okay. of what what's a man, what's a woman, uh, what's civilization, what's barbarism, right? All yeah. of that is preconditioned by the dialectic of oppressor and oppressed, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, and you see this, and you see that, and you know, you 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 find that theme throughout. Again, that becomes really an umbrella from which to like rethink everything, including, you know, even in um, just kind of educational philosophy. Right, right. You know, the so, the the idea of the the oppressed and the oppressor, how to find these mm-hmm. and stuff, and you know, really, kind of, um, uh, you know, breeds the 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 foundations of. Um, liberation theology. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yes. and yeah, so so much of the the the, the plagues of uh, <laughs> Market world, modern education yeah. theology, yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, right. like yeah. so much. So one last thing here, I'll just say about postmodernism. Right, it's very yeah. closely allied with critical theory or neo-Marxism. Uh, yeah. They grew up very close together. Uh, postmodernism again involves a kind of subjectivity here. Mm-hmm. Um, the basic idea, again, I'm just this is the basic idea. There's a lot more to be said. Um, but that is that everything is a development of is that consciousness um, is conditioned as a um, social construct, right? Yeah. So that consciousness and all the deliverances of consciousness are social constructs, right? Mm-hmm. Usually developed at the behest of the powerful and at the harm of the marginalized. But mm-hmm. uh, in any event, our ideas about meaning, about value, uh, about object, even the ideas about objectivity, that's Western, right? It's supposed yeah, to be yeah. Western and male, right? Um, rather than Eastern and, and something else, right? So the, all of those things are, whenever we think, see, again, this is kind of, again, as I said, all of these worries about consciousness, right? That we get in Husserl, Heidegger, yeah. Sartre, they become politicized and socialized in contemporary thought and postmodern thought, right? So mm-hmm. consciousness itself is a social construct. So what we need to do is deconstruct, right? Our yeah. ideas, our beliefs, our consciousness, because really those are not about reality, yeah. right? Those are just uh, expressions of our social conditioning, right? Yeah, and we're, and we're living in a time where we want to, you know, are, are we're, we're, I don't know if we've succeeded yet, but uh, of deconstructing a lot of that. But then they'll, because you have, because in, in neo-Marxism and uh, critical theory, you have those two classes, we need to deconstruct it, but then reconstruct it according to who we have perceived as the marginalized. That's right. That's right. Right. You know, so we need to, it, they're not saying we just need to, you know, kind of devolve into some sort of just subjectivity, like kind of like absolute relativism or something like that, but uh, um, but reconstructed from the point of view of the marginalized, which yeah, which you however know, defined, yeah. However. <laughs> yeah, that creates a, a difficult paradox, right? Because yeah, then you just the marginalized become the powerful, and the, the formerly powerful become the marginalized. Uh, yeah. Some some postmodern theorists will accept that that's true, and they would just say, well, what we have to do is have con- like. Endless revolution, endless deconstruction. Yeah. Right. So we just kind of keep the churn going. Some of them do believe that we can reach a state where we are completely deconstructed. Sounds weird. Right. Yeah. And also completely free. Um, but it's kind of like this 
kind of utopian thing where you're just, it, but you know, maybe our society is reaching towards this where you, you're constantly coming to be something new every day, yeah. every moment, right? And there's no boundaries or restrictions. It's flu fluid, right? Right. Instead of thinking of structure, just think of fluids interacting, right? Um, yeah. That, that <laughs> that's kind of right, right, maybe the image. Okay, so oh, that, that's maddening. Yeah, <laughs> that's one part of it. So I hope everybody sees that's that's what's one part of our yeah. intellectual culture today, right? There's this yeah. radical subjectivity, right, that we've gotten ourselves into, but it's a rad radical subjectivity that's socialized, right? Mm -hmm. So subjectivity mm -hmm. and social socialization and politicization. Now, the, there's a, the opposite extreme we also experience, and this is more British and American, right? Mm -hmm. uh, historically. Uh, kind of in the, the Anglo-American world, as it's sometimes called. And that's the, the heritage of analytic philosophy, right? Okay. So analytic philosophy really grows out of the work of G.E. Moore, um, mm -hmm. not, not exclusively, also uh, uh, Frege, who's a logician uh, on the continent. Um, but analytic philosophy, very similar, not the same as uh, logical positivism, which is a continental movement. Mm -hmm. really wanted to say, okay, idealism is done. And what we need to do is just do science and stop screwing around. Right. Yeah. This is kind of like your hard nosed, you know, let's be empiricist. Let's be physical. <laughs> let, there is an objective reality. It's not all this stuff like feelings and so forth. Right. It's none of that. Okay. It has nothing to do with feelings, values, all that stuff is rubbish. Okay. Um, anything that goes beyond, you know, essences, forms, rubbish, God, rubbish, right? There's physical reality and we can study physical reality with science. And the job of philosophy is to kind of uh, clean up the loose ends, right? Yeah. Because um, there are some loose ends, right? So philosophy becomes problem solving. It's not system building, right? Analytic philosophy. And if you study analytic philosophy, you find this, right? Like it, it doesn't build systems, uh, unlike continental philosophy or ancient medieval philosophy. It solves problems, right? Yeah. It's, pure, it's almost, you know, purely practical. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Is that a good way to look at it? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it, and and like you said, it's it's refuting the the idealism. Yeah. But again, it seems to be again just re reducing real knowledge to the material. Just the material. That's right. Yeah. Just yeah. the material. So you uh, and and interestingly, consciousness is is the biggest problem for them, right? Yeah. And they're always dealing with trying to figure out ways to reduce consciousness to the brain. Right. Yeah. They call yeah. it. It's really funny. They call it the problem of consciousness, right? <laughs> you know? Because it's the, one of the yeah. it's one of the things that doesn't fit the picture, right? As neatly. Yeah. Uh, GE Moore, though, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, if I remember correctly, it's it's really in the like 1905, 1907, something like that. Maybe it's not quite that early, but it's around then. Writes a, a famous article called uh, "The Reputation of Idealism." And mm -hmm. sets himself up to refute idealism in England, which was the dominant philosophy, and he succeeds. Uh, for, you know, idealism was already a little bit on the wane, but yep. um, uh, he um, really kicks it in the teeth, right? And you know, really from him and some other thinkers in America, you get the the beginnings of again. We go from extremes from idealism to phil physicalism, right? Yeah, you know, everything has to be science. Everything has to be physical. Um, the uh, logical positive is a very extreme version of that. They use what they call the verification principle, right? So mm -hmm. if it's not directly experienced or uh, proven by science, 
then it's nonsense, right? It's kind of that kind of thing, right? And so, you yeah. know, in, in the fields of, um, you know, in this develops in analytic philosophy. This is true up through today, right? In terms of epistemology, you have what's called scientism. And mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of metaphysics, you have physicalism, right? And probably about the closest you get in ethics is consequentialism, right? Yeah. A kind of pleasure pain calculus, right? Satisfaction, mm-hmm. dissatisfaction calculus. Because mm-hmm. that's a physical phenomena, right? And you right. can kind of imagine maybe that you can measure it. I don't think you really can, but whatever. <laughs> um, that's about what you end up with, right? And, uh, you know, consequentialism can kind of fit that picture, right? Of, of yeah. A, so on epistemology, when I say scientism, I mean that science is the only form of knowledge, right? And yeah. that um, anything outside of that is just kind of guessing, right? Uh, you know, maybe cre- maybe it's creative, um, but it's creative like art. You know, um, it's not really the hard nosed objectivity. Objectivity is in the scientific method. Anything outside yeah. the scientific method is not objective. Period. Right? Yeah. Which which you get into, like you said, like morals. That's right. right. So yeah. so right. every 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 single moral decision is not based on principles but on the circumstances of mm-hmm. that that particular choice that's right yeah but there's yeah, yeah you know yeah. Um, and, and probably the, again the, the the closest thing you can get is health yeah you know yeah now now so much of this is sounding familiar <laughs> right. you know health is the ultimate good right you yeah, know it's, yeah, it's yeah. more important than freedom it's more important than virtue it's more important than anything right yeah so well, especially I, if you don't if you don't believe in in uh you know, heaven or any sort of mm-hmm. um, good outside of this earthly life, right? That's right. right? Yeah. Health is yeah. health is hugely important. <laughs> of course, you know? it is. That's right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially if especially if something like happiness is subjective mm-hmm. and completely subjective, right? What's the one thing that you know we should help guarantee people so that they can find their own happiness? Right. Yeah. Health. Yeah. 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 You think Mix- about it. You know, happiness is really a physical feeling, right? As, yeah. as a way most people understand it, right? That has feelings of satisfaction, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, it can kind of fit that picture. On the other side, you have uh, physicalism, right? It's just mm-hmm. another way of talking about materialism, but that everything is yeah. reducible to, in reality, Yeah. all that is real is reducible to, as in can be identified with um, the purposeless interaction of subatomic particles. Right. Um, so that, you know, your conversation, my conversation, your reality, the, the re- what you are, okay, is the byproduct of the purposeless interaction of subatomic particles. Right. It sounds, it sounds like a Valentine's Day card. <laughs> <laughs> like the worst Valentine's <laughs> The worst Valentine's <laughs> Right. This involves all sorts of interesting. Um, uh, yeah. uh, as I say, uh, probably consciousness is the problem they consider the, the hardest. Sure. Uh, so there's a lot of work to sh- done to try to reduce all mental phenomena to physical phenomena. Uh, yeah. one, one sort of strain you um, encounter here is what's called epiphenomenalism, right? Uh, which is the view that, um, that thoughts are not causal. They're just simply some sort of accidental byproduct of brain operations, right? So you don't do anything because of, of your thoughts, right? In fact, thoughts yeah. might not even exist, but if they do exist, they're just sort of like 
they're like the steam rising off of a or smoke rising up off of a volcano, right? They're just a byproduct. Yeah. They're not causal, right? Uh, in any ways, right? So your beliefs about say, you know, freedom or love or anything like that, they don't actually motivate any of your action, right? Your yeah. actions because of prior physical states that cause you to do stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, and, do, and then there's these thoughts that just kind of they're like I say they're like smoke coming off the top of a volcano. They're just byproduct. Yeah, yeah, and they're um, easily wiped away. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Obviously, in such a unit, in such a conception, right? You don't have any room for God and very little room for yeah. ethics. Um, you know, you can try to piece something together, consequentialism, but even that, I think, under pressure, ends up falling apart. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, any idea of transcendence, the soul, God, you know, eternal forms, all of that's out the window, right? So here we are, Jason. <laughs> right? <laughs> You've got two choices, right? Yeah. Go with uh, politicized consciousness or materialistic reduction. Yeah, are these can I Which just do choose? <laughs> choose one. <laughs> choose wisely. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's it's a terrible situation, right? And I think it's it, it's ended up putting us in what uh, some scholars terribly enough call post postmodernism uh, or postmodern realism, right? As yeah. the basic condition, in which you know postmodern realism sounds almost like a contradiction, right? Yeah. But <laughs> basically, it's a way to try to to grasp our current intellectual setup, which is that objectivity and truth are quarantined within science. Mm-hmm. Everything outside of that is politicized consciousness, right? Yeah. In which there is no objectivity. There's only um, kind of oppression, right? Yeah. An oppressor. Whatever the, whatever the mighty decides to construct. That's right. Yeah. 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 Right. So you have a politicized consciousness, right? And 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 so, which ends up being kind of, kind of in a way, still subjective, right? As you yeah. have, you know, like it's not that there's anything that's really true or good or honorable or beautiful. It's just yeah. the powerful and the powerless, right? Yeah, it's and, it's almost a know. form of relativism that's not based on the individual, but on just the society with which you live. That's right. Yeah, that's a good way. You know, so it. any any yeah, so we can construct our own society as we see fit apart from everything else that has gone before us. And that's we don't right. have to, to take any cues or anything like that. So, yeah. and that's why, and that's why, you know, having that as your premise, that's how I, you know, I think you can see how people in our society make moves that we would just say, why, why would you make that move? You know, right, let's, right. let's just completely deconstruct, you know, uh, marriage or, mm-hmm. or something that has literally been, you know, a staple of society, you know, or, or at least of Western culture. Because uh, it's a form of oppression, yeah. man. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what you have to grasp. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so we're in a situation obvious that's, it seems to me obviously not sustainable. Right. Yeah. Intellectually. If you are not one of the oppressed class, then you're disqualified from conversation except for maybe about science. Science is the only thing that's objective, but clearly science can't, science can't solve a lot of the questions we have. Science is very yeah. good at solving certain kinds of questions and problems, right? Um, yeah. But it's not good at telling us what's beautiful, what's honorable, uh, what's good. It's not good at telling us about whether or not there's something to reality that goes beyond the physical, right? Um, it's, yeah. just not, it's just not set up to do that, right? 
it can't even really justify its own epistemological presuppositions. Again, it's just not set up to do that, right? It's yeah. to do a certain kind of thing. Um, yeah. And so really, I think what we've got is our culture and our public discourse mm-hmm. is caught in this cognitive dysfunctionality, right? Yeah. Between scientism and politicized consciousness uh, such that we can't really figure anything out. We can't, we can't form an effective public reason because mm-hmm. these two forms of thought corrupt public reason uh, to such a degree, right? Uh, and it's almost really the absence of philosophy, right? We just, we don't have a philosophy, right? That can bear the weight of uh, public reason. Yeah. Did we have one before maybe? <laughs> maybe we did. <laughs> maybe we did. Yeah. Yeah. I think, no, uh, all right. Excellent, I think it's Dr. a long story of how it fell apart. That's yeah. part of, you know, what we've been talking about. Yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating. I think, I think this, yeah, the new course, I, I mean, I'm excited for this new course. Uh, uh, to roll out and everything. I mean, just to, um, you know, I think just to help people with, you know, how did, how did we get here? You know, mm-hmm. like it's, it is, it is an absolutely fascinating um, story of, you know, how, how are we processing our own thinking? How are we, mm-hmm. how are we um, building structures of thought and all these things? Um, and where did we go wrong? You know, did we get anything right? Right. Is there a better system than, you know, um, uh, you know, looking at Aristotle, you know, or even just, you know, taking in, um, you know, the the ancients as, as opposed to just, you know, beginning philosophy and with the Enlightenment and things. So, you know, I think this is uh, I think this will be a very helpful course. Um, and I think uh, I want to encourage all of our listeners to to, to look for it. It'll be uh, forthcoming uh, at Catholic Studies Academy. And uh, really just to, to help us to understand the world we live in so that we can move forward. It's, you know, it's, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, if you're, if you're going on a hike and Mm -hmm. you look, you know, you're on the trail and Mm -hmm. you have a map of the trail, but you don't know where you are at (laughs) on the map itself. You see Mm -hmm. the trail, you know, you're on the trail, but you don't know where you're at on the map. It's very difficult to see where you're going, right? Mm-hmm. So this course, I think, does a will do a good job of of really helping us uh, uh, show us the foundations for modern thought and modern political discourse, and hopefully, from from by understanding this, we can you know uh, form form new paths forward towards you know, like we said, all that is you know true, good, and beautiful. Right. Um, so uh, check out all of our content over at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Until next time, God bless.